Welcome to Conversations with Dr. Jennifer, a collection of interviews on the topics of relationships, sexuality, spirituality, and more, all featuring Dr. Finlayson Fife. Thanks for joining us today on Mormonland, where we explore news in and about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm senior religion reporter Peggy Fletcher-Stack. I'm joined by managing editor Dave Noyce, who oversees the Salt Lake Tribune's faith coverage. Hello, Dave. Hi, Peggy. Over the Memorial Day weekend, a woman who has been part of the Mormon Moms TikTok network told her millions of followers that she was getting divorced. The reason? She said she and her husband had participated in what she called soft swinging. Though unverified, the video of her talking about it went viral and has been reported widely and salaciously on social media. Many questions remain about the story, but whether it is true or not, it does shine a light on the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and its teachings about sexuality in marriage. Here to talk about these questions via Zoom is Jennifer Finlayson Fife, a licensed therapist in Chicago who specializes in working with Latter-day Saint couples on sexuality and relationship issues. Jennifer, welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay, so the church is pretty clear on its standards, chastity before marriage, and fidelity after, but it has also said that what couples choose to do within their marriage is up to them. Mm-hmm. Would swinging somehow be allowed under these standards? I can't imagine it, no. <laughs> <laughs> so is there really a swinging phenomenon among Latter-day Saints? How do you make sense of this? So, you know, some people have questioned whether or not the story is even true. And of course, I don't know, but I have seen with clients, some in the faith transition community, some that are even more devout, have contemplated the possibility of opening up their marriage or doing some version of swinging. So I know at least of people who have been grappling with that question and or have tried it. And they called it kind of soft swinging, which... I'm not exactly sure what that means. I'd never heard that term before, but I, I think it has to do with opening the relationship light. So, <laughs> you know, some level of sexual contact, but some agreed upon terms or something with other people. Do you have a way of thinking about this that why would this be appealing? I don't know for sure, to be honest. It's an idea that does not appeal to me at all personally. So it it is a little hard to make sense of, but I do think that... For a lot of people who, first of all, if they've gone through some kind of a faith crisis or even a marital crisis, uh, that is to say, finding themselves unhappy, bored, perhaps feeling stuck, that it's an attempt to not blow up a marriage often, but manage the unhappiness in the relationship and in particular around the sexual relationship. I think a lot of couples in and out of the church can come to a place of feeling some boredom sexually, some sense of staleness in the marriage. And the way the couple handles that, there can be a wide range in how people handle it. Uh, But I do think that some people think, you know, we need to wake our marriage up and maybe we can do that through some sexual novelty outside the marriage. And I think this is especially pronounced if someone has related to their faith in a highly authoritative way, that is that their life has been really structured through an external authority. 
And then when that gets questioned or challenged, sometimes people swing literally like into, you know, a kind of adolescence, but happening in their 30s, a kind of, you know, we're throwing the rules away and we're going to do things our own way, a kind of anti-authority position that can feel justified if they've confronted some disillusionment, but, you know, often exposes kind of lack of a internal moral compass or kind of a clarity about or wisdom about themselves and life. You know, Jennifer, you just raised age a little bit. I was going to ask about that. What, if anything, does this tell you about, say, modern views of sexuality among younger Latter-day Saints? That's an interesting question. Well, I do think that younger Latter-day Saints are generally speaking, and and just in the population at large, people are less, in some respects, less authority-based. You know, my kids, I grew up saying, Mrs. Smith, Mrs. You know Jones to my neighbors, to my friends' parents. My kids didn't do that. They would call friends' parents by their first names and their teachers by their first names. So there's much less of this kind of authority deference culturally. And so I think a lot of Latter-day Saints aren't as rule-bound who are younger, more likely to drink coffee, more likely to kind of define the terms of what the law of chastity means for them. So I think that may well be a piece um, that's going on for a lot of people that are younger. But I also think there's a developmental piece of some, again, that sort of internal compass, the kind of internal anchor around what's going to go well and what isn't. I think sometimes people are not at high levels of kind of moral maturation. And so some of that decision making is not particularly wise. So. You work with Latter-day Saints and uh, and marriage and sexuality. What what do you think is the vulnerability for members who try something like an open marriage? Well, I do I do think one vulnerability, even for being kind of interested in it, is that sense of like kind of locking up their life very early, so that they got married early, they only had sex with one person, and oftentimes there's plenty of sexual anxiety in that marriage because they've grown up men and women often having a lot of ambivalence about sexuality. And then marriage asks you to be a lot more vulnerable. That is to say, if you're going to really let someone in on who you are sexually, it requires a basic comfort with being a sexual being. And men and women often handle the anxiety around that in different ways that are kind of culturally dictated or around gender stereotypes. But I think that what often how it gets handled is that the sex in the marriage is rather boring if existent, Hmm. (laughs) meaning it's kind of everybody kind of often will just sort of take a lot of the eroticism, the passion out of the marriage. So a lot of people I work with, like the woman will have sex to keep her husband from looking at porn, but it's more in this utilitarian way. And of course, not all LDS people are having sex like that, but a lot of the people that are coming to me, they're struggling to create something alive and committed within marriage. And this is not just a Latter-day Saint phenomenon. It's an issue of the the challenges of really being in an open-hearted sexual relationship. It requires a level of exposure and maturation and ability to handle oneself to be able to create it. But I think when one confronts the challenges of marriage, then there's often this idea that someone else can give me that 
sexual validation. I can find the pleasure in a different kind of person than the person I'm married to. So it's very easy to think that what I would call kind of cheap validation will give you the fulfillment you're looking for rather than learning how to create something more real within yourself and within your marriage. So a lot of people, again, not a Latter-day Saint phenomenon per se, but a lot of people will have affairs, will seek sexual validation outside of the marriage because it's, you know, it's easier to get it because they don't know you that well. Yeah. <laughs> and you can keep it superficial. <laughs> so I don't know exactly how to ask this, but, you know, in, in, in Mormonism, there's an eternal marriage component, too. Does that, mm-hmm. I don't know, for lack of a better word, raise the stakes? Well, I, I'm, I can imagine that it does for people if they feel unhappy And also if the cost of getting divorced feels especially high in terms of how it is understood in the community, what it means, you know, for their standing within their community, trying to find sexual validation or freedom without disrupting the marriage could be especially tempting. So, yeah, I I often thought as when I was a missionary, like families are forever was not a real selling point for some people (laughs) because they felt more trapped in their marriages and so on. I almost feel obligated to ask about this, but the church, of course, famously has unconventional marriage in its history, of course, at least by Western standards, you know, with polygamy. Does that play any right kind of role in members perhaps being more susceptible to breaking some of these what would traditionally be seen as barriers? That's such an interesting question. I don't really know. Mm-hmm. I've never heard anyone use that framing to justify mm-hmm. it because in some ways they're they're more in a frame of liberalism than this is my cultural heritage to have multiple women. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I haven't ever heard it that way, but it's 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 an interesting question. Do you think Chase Latter-day Saints couples Uh, get married, both virgins, have too high expectations for sex when they're finally allowed to, quote, do it? Yeah, there's a lot of ignorance about what it really takes to create a sexual partnership. There's also a lot of gender ideas about how the other person is going to make sexuality okay for you, right? So I, I think both men and women inherit a lot of anxiety about sex. And I think that in both cases, there's the idea that your partner will make sexuality and pleasure legitimate. The only problem is they don't have the validation to give because they are also in an uncomfortable relationship to pleasure and sensuality often. And so there's both naivete, lack of education often, high expectations, but often difficulty being able to validate one's own sexuality or another way of saying it is to really be okay with the fact of your sexuality, your capacity for pleasure, and to be at peace enough with yourself as a sexual being to be comfortable with sharing your sexuality, discovering it, developing it, but also a model we don't do a good job of teaching our youth and young adults around is an is a model of partnership, right? There's much more of an idea that women's sexuality exists to support men's natural sexuality. So there's kind of this idea that women's sexuality exists to support men and keep them from going off the rails. And that's not a partnership model. It's not an intimacy model. It's a utilitarian model and it it gets old very, very quickly. Um, it, It falls apart quickly. 
Yeah, I, I've told people they should just, two virgins on their wedding night should do a lot of laughing, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't take yourself too seriously or you're really not going to enjoy it. Do you think also watching porn plays a role in these these expectations? You you watch these or, you know, people watch these pornographic episodes and sort of think that's what it's all about. Uh, yeah, it's very think- possible. I mean, it's yeah, I think it's possible because, again, there's a naivete around what constitutes great sex. How does it get created? What can one really expect create, have, what makes it great. So there can often be, um, I think of of fear of missing out phenomenon, this idea that everybody else out there, the ones that are really free, not bogged down by life's obligations are having a grand time. And the truth is, you know, there's a lot of research that supports the people having the best and the most sex are monogamous couples, but people are often having real challenges in their marriage and the difficulty of addressing it again, makes it easy to want to look outside for it. You know, with the church's emphasis on chastity before marriage and its its general, you know, abhorrence of so-called sexual sins, do you find newlyweds who have a difficult time not seeing those bedroom relations as dirty or evil? And how do you help them with that? Yeah, I think a lot of people do see it as dirty or evil. I know I've worked with a lot of people who know they shouldn't think that, you know, it's kind of the way they would say it, but their kind of general reaction to it is that it's overwhelming and that they would prefer, they want to be desired perhaps, but they want to create a marriage that really doesn't have eroticism in it. I think it's in part you know, I'm working on a book right now around spirituality and sexuality. And, you know, when we're young in our development, we see them as is opposite as you can't have one or you get one or the other, your spirituality or your sexuality. And a lot of us grow up in that mindset that you can't be an erotic being and a spiritual being. A lot of people are trying to be good by subduing this part of life but it works against life. It works against spirituality, in my opinion. It works against a cohesive and intimate marriage, which is an ideal we really hold as Latter-day Saints. We're so afraid of sexuality generally as a culture that we really actually interfere with meaningful, anchored, loving sexuality as a part of, of good marriages. And And that sort of fear, that sort of doesn't ultimately fit with the Mormon theology, right? Yeah. In fact, we have a very exceptional theology around the body and even of sexuality that it's really integral to our spiritual development. One of my arguments and my in my thinking around this is that that our embodiment, our capacity not just to be agents and choosers, but our capacity to love and be loved, to know and be known through our sexuality is highly related to our ability to find joy, to find profound meaning, to know what goodness is essentially at a profound level. So we really can't reject our sexuality. If we can't integrate it and come to peace with it and create good with it, well, then it will undermine not just our happiness, but our ability to grow as spiritually wise beings. So is the so-called seven-year itch, boredom with a partner and desire to reach out to the marriage, is that a real thing? I don't know about seven years, but there's a lot of itch points in marriage. (laughs) (laughs) You know, because there's sort of a basic 
problem that most of us have is that we enter into marriage hoping to lock in someone to love us and make, make us feel desirable and to make us feel worthy as we are. So we often get married more in a utilitarian frame than a love frame. We don't want to think of it that way, but we're sort of imagining we just locked in someone who's just promised God they will love us no matter how immature we are. And the problem with marriage, but also it's the beauty in it, is that it exposes your immaturities where you struggle to love. Your spouse often dislikes aspects of you that aren't that likable, meaning they're, they themselves have their own limitations, of course. But marriage actually does reveal us to ourselves and and happy couples handle that news better than unhappy couples. When we don't like the message we're getting from our marriage partner, it can be easy rather than dealing with, with ourselves and what's true in it to go look for easier validation outside. And so that's a very human tendency but one that it just doesn't pay off. It actually just creates more trouble, more invalidation, more anxiety. And so I haven't seen it go well for people. You, you raised this earlier too. How, how do you help people who feel, quote, stuck in their marriage or sexually unfulfilled? What do you do to help them? Well, one of the things, you know, I do a lot of teaching of LDS couples on these things. And what I'm often trying to help couples to do is to understand that nothing's going wrong in the marriage, even though they are indeed unhappy and indeed suffering in some way. But rather than think that the marriage is problematic or they married the wrong person, instead to look at what the pain in the marriage is revealing to them about themselves, about how they relate to themselves and the other person. It's really interesting because as human beings, we're so good at telling ourselves stories that we're comfortable with, but not as good at actually looking at the actual behavior in the marriage and what it can teach us. And so I'm often trying to help wake people up to what they're participating in, what they keep recreating, the unhappiness they keep recreating, because if they can see it and change their behavior, not only do they grow in their own moral development as a person, in their capacity to love, to be at peace with themselves, but they become more able to create a peaceful, loving marriage. There's a lot there to learn in the context of monogamy. Uh, you know, much like Jean England talked about, that's the higher law. That's the higher version of marriage because it pressures your growth into a better person. What could the church do to improve its messaging about marriage and sexuality? First of all, just to be better able to normalize the struggle in marriage. I mean, I think sometimes we want this idea that if you got married in the temple and you got your young women's medallion and you're that it's all going great for everybody except you, you know, so that's what a lot of people think is that they go to church and they and they get all these picture perfect images. And so they think there's something fundamentally wrong with us. We have a secret as opposed to no, you know, this is this is what marriage is. And I don't mean in a discouraging way like that there to, to normalize the process of growing and seeing oneself honestly in the context of a marriage. I also think not talking about it in terms of serving each other, but more about learning about who you are relative to your partner, your equal partner. So that there's more of a frame of intimacy rather than a frame of roles. You know, we really teach culturally an idea of men doing men's thing and women doing women's things. Men take care of women, women take care of men but not a model of intimacy and real partnership. 
And that's where I think the first, you know, the role model is a more immature model. The intimacy model is one that requires more from us, but also allows us to create more real happiness in marriage. We have the theology to support it. It's what I'm writing a lot about right now. <laughs> so, but it, we have the theology to support it and it would really help people, I think, to value the process that they're in and to grow within it. Do you think that the church could do a better job of helping people feel more comfortable in their bodies? Absolutely. A lot, uh, the church does a lot of uh, modesty lessons, etc., which often get translated into cover up and yes. arrest and, and yes. I think we could absolutely still value chastity and fidelity while celebrating the body and sexuality, even as a God-given gift. So you don't have to shame it out of your kids to inhibit their behavior. In fact, in my dissertation research, the women who did best in terms of even obeying the law of chastity were the most at peace with their sexuality. So they they weren't doing it to earn a future man's approval. Their decision to wait until marriage was like a self-respecting decision. It was what they wanted as a way of respecting their body and their sexuality. We often imagine we have to scare our youth into chastity. And it's just simply not true. The more we can teach our youth and children to be really at peace with and feel good about their embodiment, the more you allow them to be the drivers and the choosers in their life, the less they're making decisions out of anxiety, fear, validation seeking. You know, we really, even though our messaging is often well-intentioned, we don't know we're working against our own goals. Do you think this viral video could be a teaching moment? <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> it's like, do we really want that? <laughs> I think a lot of people, when they're considering opening up their marriage, you know, are imagining the upside of it, the excitement in it, the thrill in it, you know, it's very difficult to be sexual and not have your heart go along with it on some level. It's very hard to pull off. It's just, I think people imagine they can't handle monogamy, but generally would say, if you can't handle monogamy, well, the chances of you being able to also handle polyamory are very, very low. I'm sure there's some people out there who have and do handle it fine, but I haven't experienced people who are struggling in monogamy to move their marriage forward in that way. Jennifer Finlayson Five, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And thanks to Dave Noyce. Uh, and thanks to our producer, Tamara Kemsley. We remind our listeners that they can keep up on all the happenings in and about the church by subscribing to the Salt Lake Tribune's free Mormonland newsletter. Just go to sltrib.com to sign up. And we'll talk again next time on Mormonland. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, we ask that you please rate, review, and share the podcast so that more people can find and benefit from Dr. Jennifer's work.